we're going to go ahead and dive into our um, overview of the Gospel of John this morning. So if you would, turn to John chapter 1, and let's go to the Lord in prayer before we, we open this book together. Father, this morning, um, Lord, we come to you, and Lord, we are, we are hungry, we are thirsty, and in need of you, as we always are. And Lord, I thank you that you have given to us, through this gospel, the truth of your Son. I pray that our eyes together would be opened to behold his glory to believe on him together, and to grow in our faith. We ask this in his name. Amen. All right, so early church tradition, as well as ample evidence within the text, identify the author of this gospel as John the Apostle. John and his older brother James were fishermen by trade. They were called by Jesus to be his disciples. And he and his brother, along with Peter the Apostle, made up what was the inner circle of Jesus' disciples. They alone witnessed his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. And out of all the disciples, John appears to have been the closest to Jesus in friendship. Now, in addition to this gospel, John also wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, as well as the book of Revelations, all of which were penned roughly 50 years after the events of Jesus' life and ministry. So John is around 70 years old at the time that he writes this gospel. However, I think that we would be doing a disservice to the Apostle John if we gave him too much attention especially since throughout his account he takes great pains not to mention himself at all, if at all possible. And when he is forced to mention himself, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's as if he is telling us that, listen, the only thing that is important about me is that Jesus <clears throat> loved me. He wants the focus to stay always on the Lord Jesus Christ, his gospel, his writings have one subject, one central theme, and that is the revelation of the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. So chapter one begins with what is arguably the greatest, most epic prologue of all time. And as with any prologue, the author is telling us what he wants us to know what we must be aware of, and what we are to keep in mind so that we may understand everything that follows. He opens with these words. Look down in chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. 
So why is it that John begins his gospel the same way that Moses began his first book, in the beginning? I think you could fill books with the answer to that question. But I think partially it is because he wants to demonstrate how fundamental, how elemental, how foundational this truth about Jesus Christ is. See, he is about to make a statement, a staggering, outrageous, and unequivocal statement of truth about the man, Jesus Christ. He was the Word, the pre-existent Son of God, and he was God. United with the Father, and yet separate and distinct in his person. We see here echoes of the doctrine of the Trinity. And this is really amazing because we need to bear in mind, John, John was no theologian. He had no education beyond what he needed to run a fishing business. So when we see him here expounding truths that for millennia have been mysteries, we can recognize in the grandeur and in the depth of his writings the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Without Jesus, nothing. And with Jesus, everything. His agency, his power brought everything in the universe into existence. He is the engine that drives the stars, the planets. Creation itself is sustained by the power that exists in the person of Jesus. He is the God-man. So we continue reading. Um, The early church called this gospel of John the spiritual gospel. And by that, they were referring to the deep spiritual themes and truths that are contained within it. John deals with big themes, spiritual themes of life and of light and deity. And his statement of truth in this prologue is the absolute incontrovertible deity of Jesus Christ. And all that follows is supporting and upholding this truth that he states out front. So why is it important to know this? See, throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ, throughout the age of the early church, during the time that John wrote this gospel, and even today, there are many of those who say that they believe in Jesus Christ. And when they say that they believe, they mean that they believe in him either as a a spiritual being, a spiritual force, or perhaps as a, a man, a good man, with good teaching, but not as God. Not as the Son of God, the only Son of God. And John's gospel and what he presents is a full-on frontal assault against this lie, against this position, this neutral ground that some t- try to take on the person of Jesus Christ. John asserts the deity of Jesus in terms that are so absolute, the reader is left with only two options. Either believe or do not believe. But the evangelistic message of John is this. Believe. Believe. Look at this. Look at who he is. So throughout this book, we read the words testimony, testify, bear witness. And they come up again and again and again, meaning to give evidence to a stated truth. 
And that is because everything John records in this book is given to us as evidence to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God, sent from the Father to be the propitiation for the sins of all who will believe. So John presents his evidence primarily through the testimony of John the Baptist, through the testimony of the signs, and through the testimony of Jesus about himself. So we're going to not have time to look at all of these things this morning, but instead I want to make a selection of each of these, each of these testimonies that are presented in the book. So first, in chapter 2, or rather in chapter 1, we see the testimony of John the Baptist. The author of this gospel is very careful and purposeful to include what John had to say about Jesus Christ. And it's worth noting that this gospel of John is the only gospel where we read this definitive testimony by John the Baptist about Jesus Christ. In the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we see John saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. But only in the Gospel of John do we see him say, look, there he is. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. In verse 29 of chapter 1, in this one amazing sentence, John the Baptist draws back the curtain on thousands of years of mystery regarding the Messiah and his work and his mission. Behold the Lamb the atoning sin sacrifice of God, meaning from God, given by God, which takes away the sin of the world. John is saying that Jesus is a redeemer, not only of Israel, but of those from every tribe and tongue and nation who will believe. See, the Jews were expecting a Messiah, a national leader who would lead their people out of political bondage. This is who they were looking for, but the testimony of John the Baptist says that instead, Jesus is a spiritual Messiah whose mission is to redeem all peoples, not only the Jews, from bondage to sin. In verse 30, we read John's testimony about Jesus Christ. He says, he ranks before me because he was before me. This is really interesting. See, John and Jesus were cousins. And who was older? John. John was born first by something like nine months. Um, and yet John says, he was before me. John's testimony corroborates exactly what the Apostle John has said in chapter 1, that Jesus is the preexistent son of God. He also says, among you stands one, the strap of whose sandals I am unworthy to untie. And this is not hyperbole on the part of John the Baptist. What he's saying here is that, think about this, John, whom Jesus said was the greatest among the children of men to ever live. And yet his testimony about Christ is that in comparison with the transcendent worth of Jesus, he's not worthy to touch his shoes. 
he testifies to the preexistence and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. So we've seen the testimony of John about Jesus. I want us to look at a couple of the, the signs and what they bear witness to about the Lord. So the first of these is found in chapter 2. The miracle at a wedding. Jesus performed many miracles, but the Apostle John specifically designates eight of them as signs, unique displays of Christ's power. They're called signs because of how they point beyond themselves to deep and profound truth about Jesus. So in chapter 2, we see the first of these uh, miracles or signs. Jesus and his disciples are guests at a wedding. And apparently the bride and the groom are either friends or family of Jesus' family um, because it appears that we, we see Mary serving in kind of a support staff role like many of you ladies have at other weddings. Um, and about halfway through this event, disaster strikes. The wine runs out. And this is not some party foul like you would have at a wedding today if you ran out of beverages. Wine served a very important ceremonial role in Jewish weddings. So this would be more like the best man losing the rings or the cake getting dumped over. It's, it's ruining the day. So there's a very real need that is brought before Jesus. And he chooses to meet the need. And we know this story, story well. But it should grab our attention because of what it tells us about the Lord Jesus himself. Let's look in chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Question, if I take water, pure water, and put it in a jar, what are the chances that given enough time, eventually it's going to turn into wine? Zero. It's impossible. This is a supernatural act of power. Um, so question maybe for the sciencey people in the room. Water, pure water, is made up of how many chemical compounds? Well, Two, two atoms or two substances, but one compound, H2O. Wine, on the other hand, can contain more than 1,000 chemical compounds in very specific quantities. What Jesus does here defies the laws of nature, of physics, but as the old saying goes, who can break the rules? The creator, the one who makes them. That's how my dad said it. So in the intervening few seconds between when the last jar was topped off and before a cup was drawn out of it, Jesus accomplished something that only God could do. Scientists estimate that in a single drop of water, there are contained 1.67 sextillion molecules. So in a moment, without blinking an eye by the sheer force of his will, Jesus caused every one of those unthinkable number of 
molecules to realign themselves. And acids and phenols and things that weren't there before are now created in these jars. In changing water into wine, Jesus wanted his disciples to see that he could recreate, make something new, entirely new. And he wields in this miracle a power and an authority that God alone commands. This sign testifies to the truth that Jesus is God, the Son. He's the source. He is the author, the creator. I want to notice one other thing really quickly about this that sometimes gets passed over. Um, John tells us that there were six water jars, each holding roughly 30 gallons. So I'm not good at math, but I think that comes out to 180 gallons that Jesus created. Now, I don't know how many people were at this wedding, but I'm pretty sure 180 gallons was a little bit more than was necessary to meet the need. Jesus doesn't simply meet the need. He obliterates it. He has the power to take an overwhelming deficit and turn it into a super abundance. More than enough. So, We've seen the the first sign. I want to look at the testimony of the second sign in chapter 6. So turn there if you would. In chapter 6, we won't have time to read this passage, but we see how Jesus, we remember, takes the five loaves and the two fish, and he holds an outdoor picnic for 5,000 people on the grass. I hope that we're going to have more than that many fish tonight because I I don't think it's going to cut it. But Jesus only needed two. Actually, he didn't even need two. But what he was teaching through this sign to his disciples is that no matter how overwhelming the need or how hopelessly far short we may fall, he can make up the difference. He is the source. He is enough. He is the creator. Again, this sign is bearing witness to, it's giving evidence to who Jesus is. He is God. Now, as mind-blowing as this miracle is, it's nothing compared to the sermon that follows it. This story can be found in all four of the Gospels. But what John includes that the other writers do not is the sermon that Jesus preached the day after this miracle, which this sign was really just the setup for. It was to prepare his audience for what he was going to teach. So after this big picnic is over and the leftovers are picked up, lots and lots of leftovers. So again, we're seeing the deficit turn into superabundance. Jesus' disciples get into their boat and they head across the Sea of Galilee toward Capernaum. Jesus had basically told them, you guys go on ahead, I'll catch up. I'm sure that they they were probably like, "Um, okay, like, how are you going to do that without a boat, Jesus? He didn't need the boat because he is in charge of stuff like the surface tension of water and storms and time and space and everything else. So John records for us how Jesus walked out in the middle of the night on the sea to the place where the disciples are 
are like, we're all going to die. They're rowing and rowing for dear life and getting nowhere. And they see him and they're like, it's a ghost. We're all going to die. So first he calms them down. Then he calms the storm down. And then he transports the boat where they need to go, not the other way around. He really didn't need the boat. So in chapter 6, verses 22 through 24, we see the testimony, the evidence given by Jesus about himself through his teaching. Let's read verse 22 through 27. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus calls these people out for their preoccupation with physical needs, and he points to them their far greater spiritual need. They were seeking Jesus not for who he was, but for what he could do for them. And in failing to recognize who he is, the Son of God, they failed to realize what it was that they needed from him the most. Salvation. Let's read in verse 32 through 35. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. Um, Let's see, look down through. Yes, let's read verse 35 as well. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In verse 35, we read the first of these I am statements that John records in his gospel for us. These are statements of truth in which Jesus both identifies himself with God and reveals something about himself. And just like this one, Each of these I am statements are unique and beautiful, and they often include these vivid word pictures, these deep wells of truth. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. I am the good shepherd. Before Abraham was, I am. And there are Three more of these statements that we'll get to a little bit later on. But let's go back to this one. I am the bread of life. This is an explicit claim to deity, an astounding revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And it inspires in the hearers, 
either a response of rejection or faith and acceptance. Jesus often speaks in these analogies, these word pictures. And they point to spiritual truth. And in this one, the truth being that just as eating and drinking are necessary for physical life, so belief in Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross is necessary for eternal life. So I want us to look again at the testimony of the signs. Um, Turn to chapter 11. I think it's interesting that Jesus' first sign was at a wedding, and his final sign was at a funeral. So we're looking at this miracle at a funeral. So to begin, in the town of Bethany, um, which is a small town about two hours' journey north from Jerusalem that Jesus and his disciples would often travel through on their way to Jerusalem, there lives this, this family, a brother and two sisters, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, who shared a special relationship, a friendship with Jesus Christ. And he would often, in traveling through Bethany, stop at their home for fellowship, for teaching. And so during a time that after Jesus' rejection by the religious authorities, that he is keeping away from Jerusalem, keeping to the north in the wilderness to, to evade arrest. Lazarus is taken seriously ill, and it soon becomes clear that he's going to die. So the sisters send word to Jesus, who was two days' journey away. So let's look at chapter 11, verses 3 through 7. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. It's an interesting statement. Jesus loved Lazarus, so when he heard he was sick, he stayed where he was. This is is very deliberate action on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's doing this for a reason. Let's look at verse 11 through 15. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, to his disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. I love how brutally honest John is about how clueless these guys could be. Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they're like, oh, well, that's good. I mean, sleep's going to help anybody get better, right? So I can almost like hear this audible sigh from the Lord Jesus when he replies. He's like, Lazarus is dead. He has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. He's giving us the reason for his delay. He's doing this to benefit the faith of his disciples and of Mary and of Martha. Um, and this is important because I think at this time at this point Jesus' disciples we see are becoming full of doubts and uncertainties about him 
because they've recently come from the Feast of Booths in Jerusalem, where perhaps they expected to see him recognized and accepted by the Jews, and instead they see him rejected by the religious authorities. And it is known that they are out to arrest him. And they're living basically now as fugitives along the Jordan River. And to make matters worse, Jesus is talking more and more about dying, about laying down his life and taking it up again. What could all of this mean? This is not what they expected. But Jesus is going to shore up their faith through this sign, through this miracle that he's about to perform. Let's look at verses 20 through 27. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? This is another I am statement from Christ. He says, I am the life and the resurrection. See, Martha's profession of faith was in an abstract future day, an idea. But Jesus points her faith to himself. He is the source. He is the life. See, our hope is not to be in some sentimental feeling or an idea or a tradition, but in a person, Jesus. So in verse 33, continue reading. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Nobody knows. Nobody is aware. Nobody expects what Jesus is about to do. And John very deliberately relates in verse 17 that it has now been four days since Lazarus' death. And this is significant because as the Jews did know embalming, without getting too graphic, we need to understand Lazarus' body would by now have reached advanced stages of decomposition. In other words, Lazarus was not mostly dead, but very exceedingly dead in the very grip of decay. And Jesus says, roll the stone away. He prays a prayer of thanksgiving to the Father. And in a voice that carried out of this world to where Lazarus could hear, Jesus called him out. Out of the grave, out of death itself. And immediately these deflated lungs expand. This heart that was a moment ago dead and decaying begins to beat. And new life flows through Lazarus' veins. This man is remade by the power of Christ. 
And he gets up and he walks out of the grave, out of death. He has passed from death unto life because life is in Jesus Christ. At Jesus' call, he must obey. Why did the Lord Jesus do this sign, we have to ask? Why would he not raise everybody from the dead? It was as he told us that the disciples might believe, that Mary and Martha might believe, that you and I might believe, believe that he is the Son of God sent from the Father. So word soon gets out about what happened at Bethany. And suddenly people are believing in Jesus. And the chief priests and the Pharisees become enraged at his new popularity, and they decide that at all costs they have to kill him. They are going to kill him. And he evades arrest by going again to the north and keeping well away from Jerusalem until the Passover. And as Passover approaches, Jesus sets out for Jerusalem. On his way, he stops again by Lazarus' house for one final visit. Now, all of Jerusalem at this time was abuzz with talk about Jesus. They knew that the authorities were out to get him, out to arrest him, out to kill him. They had heard about the sign of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And so everyone's talking, everyone's wondering and waiting, is he going to show? Is Jesus going to show up? Then Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. But his popularity was short-lived because almost immediately he starts to teach the crowds, the people, of his death. And they refuse to believe in a Messiah who talks about dying on a cross. So in verse 44 through 46 of chapter 12, Jesus makes one final public sermon. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. And I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So after this, his final public sermon, all of Jesus' attention, all of his energy is going to be poured into ministering to his disciples with the time that he has left. John devotes the next five chapters to this upper room discourse, a full quarter of his gospel. And the majority of what he writes is actually not recorded in the other gospels. He remembers this night well. Because he sat nearest to the Lord. And if you can imagine, in that upper room, while the authorities are outside scouring the city looking for Jesus to arrest him, and amid this growing sense that the Lord is saying his farewell, John, we read, is clinging as close to the Lord as he can, resting on him, unwilling to let him go, we see the son of thunder resting on the Lord Jesus like a child. 
he knew that he was creator and his closest friend. So in the clarity of John's recollections of that night, I think we can read the love that he bore for the one who loved him to the end. Chapter 13 through 16 detail everything that Jesus wanted to teach his disciples at this time. But what, what he wanted most of all that they should know and remember once he had gone. These lessons, I'm just going to read some excerpts from. Wash one another's feet. Love one another as I have loved you. I am the way and the truth and the life. The Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Abide in me. You have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will be able to take your joy away from you. In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Chapter 17 contains what is called the high priestly prayer because of its intercessory nature. And we call the prayers that we find in, in the other, the prayer that we find in the other gospel um, uh, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, the Lord's Prayer. But really, that was a pattern for his disciples to pray after. And this really is the Lord's Prayer. We look at this and we see the close relationship that he had with the Father, the care and the love that he had for his followers. Within this prayer, Jesus prays for himself, for the apostles, and for all who would believe. So think about this. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus was praying for you and for me. He prayed that we might have eternal life, which is to know the Father. He prayed that we might be sanctified in the truth. He prayed that we might be unified, one with another and with the Father and with Christ. He prayed that we might be with him in heaven to see his glory. And then in chapter 18, we read of Jesus' arrest. In a show of force, Judas leads this band of soldiers and officers armed to the teeth to arrest Jesus. And in a show of force, Jesus says two words, and they all fall flat on their backs. But I want us to look at verse 4 and following of chapter 18. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. John tells us that he knew, knowing all that would happen to him, Jesus knew what was in the cup, and he stepped forward to drink it. He knew, and he stepped forward. 
This is amazing love. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. John goes on to tell all of what Jesus would suffer that night at the hands of the chief priests and of Pilate. He writes also of the six hours which Jesus suffered on the cross. And John, we know, when all of the disciples scattered, he remained by Jesus' side to the end. And so he is the reliable witness of those six hours on the cross. It's interesting, in his recollections, what seems to stand out the most is the mockery, the crown of thorns, the purple robe, hail king of the Jews. John also records for us how in the middle of his agony, Jesus entrusted to him the care of his mother. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's look in chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Behold the Lamb of God. Let's continue reading. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross of the Sab- on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. John's telling us, I saw this. I saw it happen. I saw he was dead. He gave up his life. And I'm sharing this with you so that you will believe So then in chapter 21, the sorrow turns to joy, for as we saw with Lazarus, death has no dominion over Jesus. And among all the accounts of the resurrection, unique to John's gospel are the stories about Thomas and about Jesus' appearance to the seven disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So I want us to close by reading this story of Jesus appearing to Thomas, because I think that in a way it is representative of the evangelistic message of this whole gospel. So let's look at verses 24 through 31 of chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, 
my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We can be thankful to the Lord for this book, for this testimony of Jesus Christ. So, you're dismissed.